Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. And let's pray. Father in heaven, please work in us now. Use your Word to speak powerfully to us and prepare our hearts to partake at the Lord's table, which offers us an immeasurable gift, free but not cheap, eternal, and impacting us right here in the moment. Work in us, God, to cause us to delight in and enjoy the grace that's been given to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can a human understand God? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 18. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are, as, are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? These are the words of Isaiah the prophet, and they tell of the glories and the greatness of God. He gets to the end of this bit and can only say, to whom then will you liken God? God is one of a kind. There's no one else like Him. What can we compare Him with? There's nothing we can compare Him with in the world and say He's just like that. Now, we're in our Explore series, and today we come to the subject of God Himself. We've even entitled the chapter in our corresponding notebook, Understanding God. For some reason, that sounds better, at least to my ear, written than stated. Because when I state it and say, hey, we're going to understand God today, it just kind of rings a little hollow. Given the situation, God is creator and we as his creatures, can we ever hope to truly understand God? Consider his greatness. Consider his limitlessness. Consider his power, his presence, his knowledge. He is himself the actual embodiment of every virtue that we attempt. Every bit of our many limitations seems only to highlight his transcendence further. He is so far and above us, do we really have any hope whatsoever? of understanding God, it does seem hopeless. But where reason leads us to the conclusion that no person of God's magnitude would ever stoop to be known by his own creation, God's very Word, God Himself, tells us the opposite. And so look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. It says it up here on the screen, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord 
who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What is this? God is actually telling us that He wants us to know Him. He tells us here that we can understand and know Him. That is an incredible gift that God gives to His people. Let me put it this way. We can understand and know God, which is a lifetime of delight for us. We can understand and know God, which is a lifetime of delight for us. So let's, let's just dive in to this lifetime of delights. And here are three ways that we can understand and know God. The first is through nature, the second is through Scripture, and the third is through the Son. Let's take a look at through nature. Now, I know we touched on this last week, uh, but there are a couple of implications that are important to point out, so I just want to take a little bit of time to do that. First, please turn to Romans chapter 1. We were there last week. Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 20. Let me read that for you. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God's invisible attributes are actually on display. So you, you can't see them with your eyes, but they're but, they're, but they're, they're said to be obvious. They're clearly, plainly, they're on display. It's like you could see them with your own eyes. They're, you're, the reason of, of our minds uh, should gather the evidence from what we can see in creation, and it should be so clear in our minds it's as if we can see it. And so the invisible is put on display. Now, in particular, His eternal power and divine nature are on display in that clear and plain way. We can look around and we should conclude. We can look out there. We can look out there. We can look at one another. We can look at all of creation. And it should lead us to conclude quite reasonably, quite plainly that there is a God and He is very powerful. That's why another part of Scripture will say the fool says in his heart there is no God because you cannot reasonably look at all this and say there is no God. I mean, I know people do that, but they're, they're missing the obvious. And, and we see that, that there is a God and He's very powerful, but when the Scripture says His divine nature, it not only is talking about His great power, it also points to love and God's other attributes as well, which we hope to get to in a little bit. You see, God has done this on purpose. God's, he has put all this on display in His creation so that man is without excuse. He's shown them there's no one that should deny the existence of God, and yet many people do. And there's no one that should run after a false god, and yet many people do. Why is that? Because God has put Himself on display in all that is made. Now, the first implication for us in this is is this, that every human knows, every human knows down deep that God exists, that He gave us life and He has a claim on us. That they know it. Now, they may suppress it like Romans 1 is telling us. They may, they may push it down. They may try to deny it. They may hate that truth. They may run from it. But they cannot escape from the reality that deep down they know that there's a God who made them. I had a, a friend in college. and My first year of college, went to a branch camp at Penn State. We used to drive back and forth to classes together. And... Um, uh, 
he was, uh, he, he, he was uh, not only was he a stated atheist, but he was uh, constantly had a chip on his shoulder about it. And so while I was content to just be with him, uh, he was not content to leave me alone. And so he would constantly provoke me and attack my faith. And so we're riding back and forth to classes, and he's constantly doing this. And on the way to class one day, he's going on and on about, how can you tell me there's a God? And, and he's, he's listing out these different reasons that he had kind of pseudoscience and pseudo-philosophy and, you know, pop science and pop philosophy. He's going on and on, pop intellectualism, and he's, he's going on and on. And, and, and finally, you know, and he just had me, and, and I didn't know what to say. He's going on and on, and finally I just retorted. I just blurt out. I, I said, look, look, we're driving down Rio. I said, look out here. Look at look at these trees. Look at the sky. Look at the sun. Look at your, our own abilities. And I, I didn't know what else to say. It just, it just burst out of me. And I, and I went on and on like that for a while. Probably the first sign that I should preach. <laughs> and, and when I stopped, and I didn't really even know what I had done, and thought I probably made a huge mess of things, it was very quiet in the car. And a few months later, he said, Okay, maybe there's a God. <laughs> but he's not a loving God. And then he started to go on down that road. <laughs> so here he is. I'll never forget that response. He's a stated atheist. He's constantly provoking. But his response in that moment was meek. His tone and argument took a major shift in a moment. He just couldn't deny it. When he stopped and looked at it, he said, Okay, yeah, there's a God. If that should give us hope and evangelism, shouldn't it? And whoever we're talking with, no matter how abrasive and opposed they are, it should remind us they know because God's revealed it. That's why they know. That's why we need to persevere in evangelism. That's why we need to be humble and loving and winsome. And later, you know what I learned about him? That his parents were Christians. That his mother had cancer. And that even through much prayer, she died. And so what he was really wrestling with was how could God do that to me and my mother and my father? Now that's the first implication. Here's a second. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. And I just want to read verses 1 and 2 to you. And this is not new. It's not even New Testament new. It's ancient. This truth is ancient. It goes back to the beginning. So in Psalm 19, uh, uh, David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. See, the heavens are fascinating. All of creation is fascinating. I personally, I love nature documentaries. Sometimes I just want to watch something, but I don't want to watch nonsense or something that has no value whatsoever. So I'll go to the documentary section in Netflix and I'll, and I'll watch documentaries. And I enjoy especially documentaries about nature. I feel like I'm learning something and it helps me to worship God more. So the other night, my girls can't believe this, I watched a documentary on salt and it was fascinating. You've got to watch this. And then I watched one on coffee. And I want you to know the coffee bean is incredibly complex. And do you know that when it gets roasted, it becomes even more chemically complex? Anyway, it's fascinating. But, which is why I, I want to set a standard at Crossway Church that we don't drink bad coffee because God has glorious things for us in regard to coffee. All of creation is fascinating, but it was, what is really fascinating is what the heavens and all of creation are declaring. They're speaking, they're preaching, they're, they're proclaiming, they want you to listen, they are messaging, they are talking about God. Our fascination with these things is not a healthy one unless it turns to honor and be fascinated with the one who did all of this. Now, humans have, since the fall, often fallen into the idol worship of worshiping the creature, the creation, rather than the Creator. Now, we tend to think we're too sophisticated for that now, and in Western civilization, that just doesn't happen. But as Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new in our hearts. We are tempted. There's a lot of focus in the world today on the earth and on nature. 
Even some of the wording we, we do in nursery rhymes with our children, Father God and Mother Earth, as if, as if Mother Earth was as real as Father God. Listen, Father God is real, and Mother Earth is not, or Mother Nature is not. And so all of creation is meant to point to God and to fascinate us with Him. Now, media attention and celebrity attention, they put a lot of attention on the earth. It's not all wrong. I'm not saying it's all wrong. We should steward creation. But there's a distinct sense in in much of the attention given to the earth that there is creation fascination. And in that creation fascination, that fascination does not get transferred to God as worship of God. It just stops there. And that's, that's idolatry. And tragic. And dear friend, you and I, dear Christian friend, we need to discern better than that. Let us not worship the creation, but rather let us praise the Creator. And and yes, even in our sophisticated Western uh, prosperous societies, there is much creature worship going on. We can understand and know God, which is a lifetime of delights for us, so we can see that we can know Him through nature. We can also know Him through Scripture. And and more explicitly, we talked about general revelation, that's nature, last week, and now we're getting back to that specific revelation, what the Scriptures teach us. Now, the Scriptures reveal so much about God that this topic is way too vast to handle without utter exhaustion. Whether, Whether it's one sermon or whether it's years of sermons, it's too much. And yet, Of course it is, because God would be overwhelming. Our Creator would be overwhelming to us. But for our purposes this morning, I want to break this out into just two quick parts. Trinity and attributes. Trinity and attributes. So the Scriptures teach us about the nature of God. They teach us about the Trinity, that God is Trinity, He's triune, and they teach us about His attributes. Now, now it also teaches many other things, but let's focus on those two. So first of all, Trinity. Trinity is one of the most distinctive doctrines in the Christian religion. We have a triune God. We believe that God is one essence in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, consider that with some of the other great monotheistic religions of the world. When I say great, I mean vast, I mean popular, I mean many people. So Judaism, Judaism does not see God as three in one. Islam does not see God as Trinity. They are monotheistic. We are monotheistic. But we see God as one with three persons. Three in one. That's a critical difference and a critical doctrine. It's immensely challenging to precisely teach Trinity precisely because it is God Himself. And yet God has given us the ability to understand and know Him to to a great degree. So let's talk about what Trinity is not. Trinity is not three gods. It's not three gods. That's polytheism. That's paganism. That has been, uh, for vast majorities of people in the world, over vast periods of time, it has been many, many gods. Polytheistic. We do not believe in three gods. We do not believe that God is three parts as if he is three equal parts of 33.3333% each. God's not one pie sliced into three pieces. That's, That's not a sufficient way to understand him. And nor is he three manifestations, as some have claimed. It's not that in the Old Testament he was Father, and in the New Testament he's the Son, and then in the church age he's the Holy Spirit. It's not oneness theology. Now, these are all heresies that the church has addressed through these thousands of years and has come to orthodoxy that God is three in one. One of the reasons we give out Bible doctrines and resources, we appreciate the way Wayne Grudem lays out the revelation of Trinity. Uh, is partially revealed, Trinity is partially revealed in the Old Testament. So if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, you can just jot this down. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You would see God before creating um, uh, humanity and all, all the uh, uh, animals on the earth and, and everything that lives. Before doing that, he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, before creating man, he says, let us make man, let us make man in our own image. And yet later he reveals to his people that he's one, God is one. 
And so we've, we've got a challenge here because we've we got this plurality, but we have the singular. And so we have this mystery of God beginning to be revealed from the very beginning of God's Word. It's partially revealed. Take another step, and there's many steps to be taken in the Old Testament. But if you were to look at Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, very helpful text. David, King David is writing, and he writes this. He, sa- he writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Jesus would later quote this to prove that he was God. Because he's saying, why does David say, well, first of all, who's he calling Lord beside God? So, of course, he's, he's talking to God. And then why is he talking about two lords? And he's using two different words there, the typical one for Yahweh. That's Lord, all capital. Uh, a lot of times we translate that I am or the Lord. And then Lord as his king. And both are being addressed as David's Lord. So the Lord says to my Lord. And so again, we're getting this sense of plurality. David's getting a slice of the, the throne room of God. And we're getting this plurality within God within the one true God. Now, more complete revelation comes in the New Testament. At Jesus' baptism, why don't you turn here, Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3. And I, I won't go specifically to it, but if you look at the baptism of Jesus, there at the end of chapter 3, you can see in, in, in verses 16 to 17, that the Spirit of God, so Jesus is in the water, the Son is in the water, He's being baptized, He's baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove, the Spirit of God, we're told, descends like a dove. And then a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so, obviously the person saying, this is my Son, is the Father. And so you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there, manifest powerfully, and it demonstrated for us, and, and this, this doctrinal trinity becomes a little clearer. Now, when Jesus tells His disciples in Matthew chapter 28 uh, that they should go and make disciples, what does, he, what does He say to them? He says, go and make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's why when we baptize, like we will, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll baptize and we'll baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, one time we had been talking about in the office, I think someone uh, that was struggling with oneness theology, and they, in particular they were talking about being baptized in the name of Jesus only. And we had been talking a lot about that that week, and we actually had baptism ourselves that coming Sunday. And so I went to baptize the person, and, and I just had this... Um, uh, it's not that I changed my doctrine, but, but I had this moment of confusion, and, uh, which often happens in, at the worst possible times. And so I baptized them, and as I addressed the baptism, I got confused, and I said, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus. And I thought, oh, no, that's wrong. In the name of the... So I said, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it was this awkward expression and I want you to know, your, your other pastors who love me never let me forget that moment. So every single time we have baptism, they say, are you going to baptize them? At some point it comes up. Are you going to baptize them in the name of Jesus and in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? Even though I only did that one time in 19 years. Well, eight and a half here. And, uh, but it's a, a, good, a good reminder. You see the Trinity right in baptism. Because, because all of God, God and all of God and the persons of God are at work in the salvation of every single believer. And it's, it's a powerful truth. It's something we can't fully comprehend, but it's powerful. 1 Peter 1-2 helps us understand it even more. 1 Peter 1-2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you have it there again, God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, and a bit of their work that each of them does in our salvation. 
Now let's do this. Let's summarize the Trinity with three truths and a diagram. And every time you try to do this, it is somewhat imperfect, especially diagrams or illustrations. In fact, we, uh, we've instructed the uh, Entrust Children's Ministry workers to not use certain um, uh, tr- examples of Trinity because they, they, they lack, and so they can lend themselves to heresy. But uh, they're all going to be imperfect, and we do the best we can. So here's three truths. Um, Here they are. God is three persons. Number one, God is three persons. Number two, God, each person is fully God. And number three, there is one God. So there's one God, three persons, and each person is fully God. And, uh, and then here's a diagram that we hope would be helpful. Let me see, I think you can see that pretty well. The idea here is that uh, you can see there's one God, right? That's, the, that's what's represented by the center. Um, I think I have a laser on here. A laser? Oh, there it is. Look at that. All right. So that's what's represented in the middle. But that God is in three persons. And so uh, you have the Father. So God is the Father, or rather the Father is God. And then you have the Son. The Son is God. And you have the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. He's distinct from the Son, as is the Son distinct from the Father, and the same way with the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is that God is one, but each person is distinct. And so we want to, we want to try to, to grasp that even though that is, that's incommunicable to us in that sense, it's incomprehensible to us how God could be one and yet three full and distinct persons, it's, it's what the Scriptures teach us, and it's true, and we need God in that form so that we um, can be saved. And so, there's something good to remember, and I just want to bring one implication to bear on a triune God, and there, there are many reasons why Trinity is critical. And uh, I heard this most recently uh, from a Gospel Coalition video with uh, Don Carson, John Piper, and Tim Keller. If God is not a trinity, then God is not a God of love. Not primarily. What does the Scriptures teach us? Scripture teaches us that God is love. Scripture shows us what God did to love us. And Scripture teaches us that love uh, remains above all things. So what's going on here? How does a triune God demonstrate love? Well, if God is not a trinity, if God is just one person, then he's, He exists on His own. He was never created. He always existed as, as a singular person. And one day, He decides to create. And when He creates, what is demonstrated is His great power. And so he creates. Now, for that God, what comes first? Is it love for others? Well, no, because he's, he's full, fully complete and self-existent in his one person. And so what he demonstrates is his power. And it makes sense if you follow other religions in the world, what do they key on? They key on the power of God, right? So in paganism, it's all about power. In Islam, it's all about the power of Allah. But if God is a trinity, and so He exists, He exists for all eternity before we're ever made. But He exists in relationship. And the Scriptures reveal to us how much love is in that relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit then love and relationship comes before power. And so when God creates, He creates in love. It's powerful, but it's love. And it's that love that is demonstrated among the Trinity that is then extended to us through what God has done. And that's one of the reasons why the Trinity is so critical and sets the Christian religion apart as having a God of love and and us being the recipients of love 
and us then going and loving one another. Well, um, <laughs> what's going on up there? <laughs> so, God is a God of love and a triune God of love. And, and let me just uh, hit on His attributes uh, as well, uh, because we know God through Scripture and His attributes, and, and we don't have the, the time again. It, it would be, it's inexhaustible, but the Scriptures are there and it's worth studying. Historically, God's attributes have been divided into two. There are the communicable attributes of God, and then there are the incommunicable attributes of God. So if something is communicable, that means it's transmittable or transferable or it's infectious. So if someone has a communicable disease, that means you can catch it. And if they have an incommunicable disease, that means you can't catch it. And so when we talk about God's communicable attributes, we're talking about something that we can see in God and we, we get it, we understand it. In fact, we can emulate it. Whereas when we talk about His incommunicable attributes, those are things about God that are so wholly different than us as creatures that it causes us to worship Him as we ponder them. But we, but we can never be those things. They, they don't transfer or translate. They're not transmittable to us. So some of those incommunicable attributes are things like He has no beginning or end. And He sees all points of time the same. He is eternal. Right? We can't relate to that. We, we've had a definitive beginning. It was the beginning that God gave us. And eternal life is in God's hand for us. Not only that, but God is not limited by time or space. He's omnipresent. Try as we might with our technology, we are always limited to one time and one place. And that's good for us to recognize that. It's important. But God is not limited to that. He is in all places at all times and in full effect. God is not a created being and He needs no rest or food. We call this the self-existence of God or His aseity. God never grows or changes. It's not like God had to grow up, that He went through a stage of developmental immaturity. No, God was always perfect and happy and content. This is His immutability. He never changes. And praise God that He doesn't. Now, we can't relate, and that's precisely why we should study Him. Because many things are set in proper order in our lives and we see God to be as transcendent as He really is. And then there's the communicable attributes of God, things like His knowledge and His wisdom and His wrath and His love. And much can be said about these things. But since we're made in the image of God, these are, and that's a precious gift, we, we can understand those things. And, and not only that, but uh, God is those things in their perfections. And so we talk about love, we say God is love because, it, because He is the embodiment of perfect love. And so it also shows us how when we study that and we look at God and we see the perfections of His love or any other of these communicable attributes, it shows us how great what? It shows us how great grace is. Why? Because if you compare your love to, to my love, you might say, oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I love better than Pete loves. But if you compare your love to the perfections of God, which is the true standard of love, then we all fall short of the glory of God. And there's no reason why He should accept us. And in fact, our attempts at love are offensive to Him because they're like filthy rags. Which is why His Death on our behalf, the Son's death on our behalf, pays for our sin. And, and, and it pays for our sin of not loving perfectly like the Father loves. And so we should study the communicable attributes of God and see how far separate we are from, from those embodiments of those virtues so that we understand grace better and so that we ask God, God, by your Holy Spirit, let me lay aside sin and let me become more like your Son in all of these things so that I can love better on this earth. And so I can be these other things better. I can, I can import those communicable attributes that I would have those attributes as well. Now, studying God will delight us with His grace. And we can understand and know God, which is a lifetime it's a lifetime uh, 
of delights for us. Finally, let me point out to you that we can understand and know God in a third way, not only through nature and certainly and, uh, through His Word, uh, but then also and most importantly through His Son, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures reveal the best way to know God. And really, the only true way is to know Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot know God if you have not trusted Jesus Christ, if He is not your Savior. By trusting Him, we come to know and understand God. So if you go with me to John chapter 14, go with me to John chapter 14, the fourth book in the New Testament, the fourth gospel, you'll find the book of John, John chapter 14. I'm going to read for you verse 8. Now, leading up to this, this is Last Supper. Jesus is teaching His disciples. He's teaching them. He he washes their feet. He says, I want you to do this for one another. I want you to serve one another. I want you to be humble and lovingly serve each other. And then He gives them a new commandment. And the new commandment He gives them, He says, I want you to love one another. This is the command. Listen, you're not under the law. Here's Here's the law for you. Love one another as I have loved you. And so he's teaching them and, and, and he's showing them these things. And, and, then, and then at the beginning of chapter 14, uh, Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be going away now, but don't be troubled. And he's trying to assure them. Don't be troubled. I'm going away, but I'll be with you through my spirit. I'm going to empower you. He's, he's trying to tell them these things. In the midst of that, Thomas says, and Jesus says, don't worry, in the end you're going to be with me because you're mine, you belong to me, and, and I love you. And, and Thomas, in the, in the midst of all of these incredible teachings and amazing things, he says what probably you and I would say, you know, Lord, hey, how are we, let's get real here. How are we supposed to follow you and go where you are if we don't know where you're going? If you think about it from his mindset, really from ours, it makes a whole lot of sense. But, but if you can imagine Jesus who's, who's facing his death and he's, he's, he's doing this to save them, can you imagine how this must be processed? But he's perfect in his love and perfect in his patience. And he tells them, look, I, you're not getting this, Thomas. I'm the way. I'm the way to me. I'm the truth that you need to hear. I'm the life. And, he, and he's sharing that with them. And then, and then after that, Philip, Philip thinks to himself, he thinks, well, I'll be more reasonable. You know, Thomas, he asked them. That was just so pragmatic and unspiritual. Let me ask a better question. And, and let, me even, let me just give Jesus all the benefit of the doubt. So he says in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He goes on to correct them. He said, how can you say to me, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see that? If you've you've seen Jesus, just like creation, uh, not with with our eyes do we see visibly God, but just how creation puts God on display so clearly that it should be like just a clear place setting in our mind. There's God. I see Him. It's obvious. He exists. The same way when we trust Jesus Christ, when we have Him, when we've trusted Him, oh my, I see God. I understand and know God because I trust Jesus Christ. Well, what had they seen? What had they seen of Jesus? They'd walked with Jesus now for a few years. What had they seen? Well, they saw His power. They saw Jesus still the sea and heal the sick and raise the dead. They saw this power and they saw truth. They heard him speak in a laser-like fashion through all of the religious overtones and, and, and layers of the, the religious self-righteousness of the Pharisees and, and even through the, the, um, the false and, and sinful and selfish motives of people that he bumped into. They saw him speak truth directly. They saw him teach with authority. They saw him obey the Father They saw him obey the Father to hurt. 
They saw him obey the Father so that, so that it wouldn't just continue to promote his popularity and make him a continual celebrity of rising stardom. But instead he turned away from that so that he could obey the Father. They saw his obedience and they saw above all, they saw his love. How did they see his love? He was with them. He was among them. He ate what they ate. He slept where they slept. He suffered like them. He was patient with them constantly. They saw his love. This is what they'd see. Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen God. If you see this power and this truth and this authority, this obedience and this love, then you know what God is like because you see me. But not only was it about what they had seen, it's also about what they would see. And what would they see? They would see Jesus, an innocent man, wrongly arrested, tortured and executed. They knew from his display of power that he had the power to stop his execution and all of these things. And they came to understand later that he did this so that their sins would be forgiven. They saw his love for them personally at the highest level. That's why Peter later writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. They saw the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I should see. You know what's amazing is that Paul later boasts in Christ. Paul uses the word boast several times in his writings. By the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration, he writes and he uses the word boast. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, if anyone will boast, let him boast in the Lord. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like that passage from Jeremiah 9 that we read earlier. And in fact, he is quoting Jeremiah 9. So he's, he's refuting others that boast. They boast in their works. They, they boast of, of their spirituality. And so he says, look, if anyone's going to boast, let him boast that he knows the Lord. But what's amazing with Paul is when he talks, when he quotes that scripture, he's applying it to Jesus. See, Paul is aware of the right one to boast in. And it's Jesus Christ. He's aware of his need for salvation. He's aware of his need for a Savior. And so when he sees what the Lord has done, he says, if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in that. Let him boast in that. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me read for you verse 30. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 30. That's not right. Second Corinthians chapter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you think it's first Corinthians? Should we take a shot at it? Oh, I'm in first Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. So he's aware of his need for salvation. He's aware of who the Savior is. He's already talked about boasting in that Lord. And then he connects it this way. He says, if I, if I must boast, verse 30, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Now go with me to Galatians chapter 6. Just the next book. Just keep going a little bit, a few more pages. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. So Paul wants to boast in, in knowing the Lord. And that means he's, he's not going to boast in his own abilities. He's going to boast in his weakness. He's going to boast in his weakness because his weakness points to God points to His Savior and His strength. 
And then he says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So really, when you summarize Paul's boasting, he's going to boast in the Lord. And he's going to boast in the Lord by talking about how weak he is and how unable he is to save himself. And then he's going to boast in what the Lord has done. And he's going to boast in his death on the cross so that, so that he could be saved. In other words, he's not going to boast about himself. He's going to boast about God. Now, does, does our understanding of salvation cause us to boast in God? You know what's so good about true humility? It was so good about that is it causes us to, to so understand all this. It causes us to boast in our weakness. It causes us to say, here's my sin. You know, when, 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 when someone you're witnessing to wants to accuse the church of hypocrisy, which there is hypocrisy, and we can freely and fully admit that you have no idea how hypocritical I am. Let me tell you, just the other day I was singing these praises to God, but in my heart I was thinking about whatever else. Yes, that's, that's the point. I'm weak. I'm, I'm sinful. But God, in His great love, let me tell you what He's done. And let me make my testimony all about Him. All about Him. And none about me. Yesterday, we had a Go Saturday where Kurt led several people from the church to go out and share Jesus Christ. And they, they did it by mainly, invi- mainly inviting people to our Christmas Eve service and, and just welcoming people and telling them about it. So it was, it was outreach, but they were looking for opportunities to evangelize. You know, I heard a story, I, I thought it was the hand of God, that there was uh, one woman went to Starbucks where I believe Kim Garber gave her a $5 uh, gift card, just said, we just want to give you a free gift and, and invite you to our meeting. So there was nothing to sign up for and, you know, there wasn't anything like that. So, so she, she, she thanked Kim for the gift and, and then she got her drink, went into Starbucks, and later on went home. And, uh, and, 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 and a little while later, uh, someone rang on her doorbell and in, inviting her to our Christmas Eve services. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Think of the love of God in that, that Christ pursued us. And now we're out there saying, look, He's, he's calling you. Hear the gospel. Come and know the love of Jesus Christ. You see, if we know God, then you know that above things about God, uh, then you know that all the things we talked about God here, they're, they're true. And you also know that that, that knowledge is not something that, that makes you great. If anything, it, it shows you how small and how undeserving. But it does more than that. That's not where we stop. If anything, it shows you how great His love is. How great His love is toward all who will trust Him. Because Jesus Christ has died for sinners like us. We can understand and know God which is a lifetime of delights for us. I want to ask the ushers to come and take their position and Doug and the worship team to come. This morning we have the glorious joy of having communion together. Now, if you, if you know and understand God, or rather I should say, if you want to know and understand God, look to God the Son. Look what Jesus did on the cross. Look at His great love, His unsurpassable love, His love for you, dear Christian. Now, unbelievers, if you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, look at Him. Look at the love of God. Do you want to know and understand God? You know He's real. He's speaking to you now. Now, if you want to know and understand God, then you have to trust Jesus Christ. And so we want to ask you to do that. Come talk to us if that's the case. Now, if you have not yet trusted Jesus, don't participate in the Lord's table. This is His table. This is for those that trust Him. 
And it is meant as an ongoing demonstration of His love. Look at the sacrament of communion that we're going to partake of soon. And I want to encourage parents, watch over your children. Their, their first step in Christ ought to be baptism. And so if you believe your child is trusting Jesus Christ, come and talk to us and we'll talk about baptism and then after baptism, the ongoing sacrament that refreshes us and reminds us of God's love in Jesus Christ. Now go with me again to 1 Corinthians. Actually, I'll just go there. You can just listen to me here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes will you stand with me please and we're going to sing together. But, but hear that again. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And when you proclaim the Lord's death, what are you really proclaiming? You're proclaiming the love of God. You're proclaiming that you have Jesus Christ. You're proclaiming that you know and understand God. And what a delight that is. You've given us the gift to understand and know you. And the first thing about understanding and knowing you is knowing your love that has come to us in the Son, Jesus Christ. And now, God, as we partake of our Lord's table, would you please impress on us that love, focus us on that love and the knowledge of that love in a way that we we can't do ourselves. Come, Holy Spirit, and work in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. Are you focused now on what Christ has done for you? Do you rejoice and delight in the knowledge of God? Do you see his great love that's come through the sacrifice of the one true son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you. You alone are God and there's no one like you. And we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we ask that you would stir our hearts to delight in your salvation again. In Jesus' name. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct all our ways. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.